In Matthew 13, 31, as a part of a great treatise on the kingdom in parable form, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And then another parable, verse 33, spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till it was all leavened. That analogy concerning the leaven is pertinent to the first two verses, which we are going to study tonight as we continue our study of 1 Timothy. And as we look at chapter 6 and the first two verses, the Apostle Paul here writes to Timothy, Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. What does the parable of the leaven have to do with these two verses in 1 Timothy 6? Well, I think they are directly related because the institution of slavery, which was obviously not God's ideal arrangement, the institution of slavery was not to be immediately overthrown by the advent of Christianity. But as with other things, it was designed, obviously, to let principles of Christianity exert that leaven among the pagans and, yes, even among those who were more receptive and, yes, even those who then became Christians and and yet still had slaves under their rule to cause them to think about some things that needed to change. Matthew 7, verse 12, is the golden rule. Whatever you would that men would do unto you, do also unto them. And so if the golden rule is applied the institution of slavery will be completely dissolved. But it was not immediately overthrown with the immediate advent of Christianity. And so the instruction that Paul gives is a leavening instruction, if you will, to Timothy, designed to, yes, eliminate the master-slave relationship if indeed people would listen to the Word of God and apply its principles. But it did not occur overnight, and if indeed it had been the case that anyone who was contemplating becoming a Christian who happened to be a slave realized that Christianity was going to overthrow the institution of slavery immediately, then that might provide for them an improper motive to become a Christian. A slave might say, well, if I could, if I just become a Christian, then my master, he has to Release me, especially if my master is already a Christian. If my master, the one who who owns me, and there were many ways to become a slave. You could sell yourself into slavery. You could be born into a slave uh, family. There were various ways that uh, people became slaves in olden times, and even in New Testament times, there was still slavery, obviously. But if someone who had a Christian for a master who was a slave and was not a Christian thought, well, I know that when I become a Christian, he's going to have to free me 
then that produces a motive that is less than honorable to become a child of God. But what we do see is the leavening effect of Christianity on this institution, and it is, it is clearly set forth by Paul, who regulates the situation at hand and does so in such a way so as if it is applied, the principles that he sets forth here in this text and the principles set forth in other texts in the New Testament, if that principle of the golden rule is applied, slavery is gone. And so he says, if you are a slave, and this is what Timothy is to teach, let as many as as are bondservants under the yoke, that is, they are slaves, And incidentally, under the old covenant, those uh, who were Hebrews who were slaves were far better treated than the pagans in terms of their uh, ownership of slaves. Aristotle wrote that a slave in his time was simply living property. That's how he characterized it. They were just living property. And the Romans obviously could do anything they wanted to with them. But even the slavery that we read about in the Old Testament was far more humane, far more humane than those in the pagan world. But what Paul says here is that if you are a bondservant, and of course, obviously, if you are are a Christian, then you are to look upon your master as worthy of honor. That gets us to the idea of the agape application of love. Agape says that I am to love all men, even my enemies. And the agape love also, and the idea of agape dictates that I also love, I also love the souls of those who may be cruel to me or my enemies. I have no right to uh, exact revenge on those who would treat me uh, in an ill way or an ugly way. And those who were the masters here, though they might be hard taskmasters, those who were bondservants were to respect them as individuals and to do everything they could to bring them to the knowledge of Christ. And the basis for this action, the basis for counting their masters worthy of all honor is seen in the latter part of verse 1. So that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And that's a principle that permeates every aspect of our lives as Christians. It is specifically applied to the master-slave relationship here. But what Paul writes in the latter part of that verse applies to you and to me in everything that we do and say in the Christian life. In our relationships with each other, in our relationships with those outside the body of Christ, we are never to conduct ourselves in any way that would cause the name of God and His doctrine to be blasphemed. And we know how that could be done. It can certainly be done, and quite tragically, it is oftentimes done by lives that do not comport with our profession. When Christians do not live in harmony with what they profess to be, and when they go out here in the world and they use language or they conduct business in a way that is deceitful and dishonest and yet claim to be followers of God, then that indeed would cause the name of God and His doctrine to be blasphemed because it will cause those in the world who see that kind of hypocrisy and who see that kind of inconsistency to say, here's a man who claims to be a Christian 
And yet look at what he does in his business dealings. Look at what he says in terms of the language that he uses. And any number of examples could be cited that would characterize the inconsistency and the hypocrisy of those who do do not live in harmony with what they profess to be. And that's what Paul is saying. If you are a slave under the yoke of a master and you conduct yourself in an unchristian way and try to rid yourself of that yoke in a way that is not worthy of a child of God and how a child of God should conduct himself, then you're going to cause the name of God and his doctrine to be blasphemed. In other words, your master may say, well, okay, I have a slave here who claims to be a follower of this new religion. He claims to be a follower of Christ, and yet I can't get him to do anything. He rebels against me constantly. He mouths. He uh, He's lazy, etc. No, he ought to be the best servant that he could possibly be in the hope that his master will not only treat him well, but ultimately become what he is, and that is a Christian. But what about those, verse 2 mentions, who are Christian slaves and have Christian masters? What about the case where the slave, the servant, has become a Christian, but the master himself is also a Christian? In that case, should the slave say, You, my master, are a Christian, I'm a Christian, therefore you must free me. No, Paul doesn't even give that liberty to the slave. What he says is, and those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren. Now why, what does he mean, despise them because they are brethren? I think the context obviously indicates by despising them because they are brethren, he means by saying to them just what I just mentioned. By saying to that master, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, and you're not freeing me, therefore I despise you for that. I think that's exactly what he's saying. And when you add the next part of the phrase, you know that that's what he's saying, I believe, because he says, rather than despise them because they are brethren and they're not freeing you from your yoke of bondage, rather serve them. Because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. You're serving a master who's a Christian, you're helping him. And if he's a Christian and doing the right thing, he's not going to abuse you. And ultimately, if Christian principles are followed to the fullest extent, what's going to happen to the relationship? It's soon not going to be a master-slave relationship anymore. You remember what Paul wrote to Philemon along these lines? concerning Onesimus, who had been a slave of Philemon and had left him and had run away from him before Onesimus became a Christian. And you remember that obviously in some way he came in contact with the Apostle Paul in Rome and Paul had an opportunity to teach him the truth and he obeyed the gospel. And in Paul's letter to Philemon, he writes to Philemon to recommend his former slave to him, sending this very letter by the hands of his former slave to him. And he writes as a part of that in verse 15, For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. In other words, maybe it was the providence of God that has all has worked all of this out. 
no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you count me as a partner, Paul writes to Philemon, receive him as you would me. And as a part of this letter, verse 21, he says this, Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. What would Paul be thinking about when he says to Philemon, I have confidence that you will do even more than I say. I think perhaps he had in mind, you'll not only receive him now as a brother in Christ and as your former slave and take him back as a slave, but you'll do even more than that. And you'll view him as a brother and you'll end that master-slave relationship. That's what the application of Christian principles will always do. Not only in reference to the institution of slavery, but also in reference to anything else that is not God's approved and ideal arrangement. So these two verses are important verses as they remind us of the power, the leavening influence in a positive way of Christianity and the growth of Christian principles and the application of those principles and how much good can be done when righteous individuals exert that righteous leaven. You remember Abraham pleading to God concerning Sodom and Gomorrah and saying if 50 righteous souls could be found, would you spare? Yes. 45? Yes. 40? Yes. 30? 20? Down to 10? Yes. Even if I can find 10 righteous souls, I will not destroy the wicked city. That says something about the power of influence. And it also says something about how important our influence is and that there's always someone of whom you may know nothing who knows something about you and is looking to you as an example. So we never need to underestimate the power of influence in the life of a Christian and how much change it can bring about. Now, when he says teach and exhort these things, he follows that in verse 3 with these words. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words. The idea here is sound words. In fact, sound words are used in 2 Timothy 1.13. Hold fast the pattern of sound words. And there the same idea is wholesome words. That is healthful words. Words that are spiritually healthy. Well, whose words are spiritually healthy? Verse 3 even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. Again, does that not tell us that there is a specific doctrine that we can know and that we must know and that we must follow if indeed we are to be characterized as being godly individuals? Well, certainly it does. There are those today who tell us that there is no specific pattern of doctrine that we're to follow at all. And yet time and again, as we've mentioned before, Paul makes it abundantly clear there is a specific doctrine. What is that doctrine? Even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that mean that those only that you find in red, if you have a red letter edition, are those that we need to pay attention to and follow? No. It means anything that Christ not only said while he lived among men, but that which he authorized. Remember to the apostles he said, I have many things to say to you, but you are not able to bear them now. But then he said, after the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. 
and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you. So the words of Jesus Christ, which is equivalent to the doctrine which accords with godliness, are all the words that not only Jesus spoke, but the words that he authorized. And so in John twelve forty eight, he says, it's those very words that are going to judge you and me in the last day. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Paul says there's a specific pattern of doctrine. The words of our Lord Jesus Christ, that which is authorized in the last will and testament of Christ. And if anyone does not teach according to that doctrine, live according to that doctrine, does not consent to the wholesome words that constitute that doctrine, then what is he? Verse 4 begins a litany of criticisms. He's proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which some, uh, from which come rather envy. That is, being envious, resentful of the good fortune or the wealth or, or whatever it may be of someone else. Strife, re- reviling, evil suspicions. In other words, always suspicious of others. Using wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. The word destitute there indicates having been robbed, robbing themselves of the truth. And why do they do it? Well, it gives us a reason in the latter part of verse 5. It's the very reason that perhaps others have done it in our day and time, and yes, some have even been convicted of such. Television evangelists and others in years past who have taken in millions upon millions of dollars and have uh, increased their coffers and their mansions and their cars and so forth and yet turn out to be charlatans indeed. And we knew they were not teaching the truth, but it becomes even evident to their own followers who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, doing it for gain. How should you react to such individuals, Timothy? From such withdraw yourself. That says something about fellowship and the fact that fellowship cannot continually be extended under certain conditions where men will not consent to the sound words of the gospel. Now, on a positive note, he reminds us beginning in verse 6 that godliness with contentment is great gain. That's a great combination. You won't find a better combination for for peaceful, joyful living than the one that is just set forth by Paul here. Godliness, which is God-likeness. In other words, living in such a way to become more like God every day, more like Christ every day because you're applying the principles of Christianity to your life. But as you do, couple that with contentment. And the two really go naturally hand in hand. If I'm going to live a godly life and I'm truly living a godly life, then material things are not going to be of primary importance to me. I'm not going to be clamoring to gain more and more and to garner more and more of this world's goods, but I'm going to be content with such things as I have. Paul had something more to say along these lines in another of his epistles to the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 11, beginning. Remember what he wrote there? Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am 
to be what? Content. There it is. And then he adds to it, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound everywhere, and in all things I have learned. Paul didn't say, this came to me as a result of my being able to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And my baptism in the Holy Spirit automatically brought with it contentment. No, Paul had to apply what he was able to teach by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Just because he could speak by inspiration of the Holy Spirit and teach by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit did not mean he was necessarily going to apply what he himself taught by inspiration to himself. What did he say in 1 Corinthians? He said, I buffet my body and bring it under subjection daily, lest after I have preached to others, I myself might be a what? A castaway. I could lose my own soul if I preach to others and don't apply it to myself. So Paul did not have some special gift that allowed him to be content, whereas you and I have to learn it. No, he said, that's what I did. I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. If times are good, I can be content when when things are abounding. I can be content when they're not so good. Isn't that a wonderful thing everywhere and in all things I have learned there it is again same as in verse 11 I've learned in whatever state to be content I have learned both to be full and to be hungry both to abound and to suffer need how did he do that same way you and I can do it I can do all things verse 13 through Christ who strengthens me That's why Paul here to Timothy says, godliness with contentment is great gain. And you really can't have contentment, true contentment, without godliness. But with true godliness, there should come contentment. There should come contentment. And why? Why is godliness with contentment great gain? He tells us in verse 7, look at it. For, because, in other words, because we brought nothing into this world, And it is certain we can carry nothing out. How much did you bring into this world? Nothing. How much are you going to carry out? Nothing. It's reminiscent of what what Job said in the early account in Job chapter 1 verse 21. Remember he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I didn't come in with anything. It's all been taken away. I didn't have anything before that. So I'm right back where I was. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound, is what Paul is saying. Very reminiscent of what Job said in the long ago. And so the why of contentment with godliness is because we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And then verse 8 he says, and having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Food and clothing really are a synecdoche, a figure of speech where the part is put for the whole. Because I personally like to have a roof over my head. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure you do too. But there's not a thing mentioned here about having a house, is there? So obviously Paul is not saying you can have food and clothing but don't you dare live with a roof over your head. You need to live outdoors. No. Obviously, food and clothing is a figure of speech, the part put for the whole. In other words, food and clothing represents what? 
material things, any material possession. If you have the basics, if you have what is needed, then with godliness coupled with what is needed, you'll be content. And let me suggest that if you are godly, you'll have what is needed. If you are truly a godly person, you'll have what is needed. Isn't that what Jesus promised in Matthew six twenty-five and following? When he said, do not take any thought or don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear, and so forth. You seek first, down at verse 33 of Matthew 6, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Now that doesn't mean that we can't better ourselves or desire to better ourselves materially, but everything has to be kept in perspective. And it is truly sobering to think about how much is said in the New Testament about money or material things. And we're about to get into another section, and we'll come back to another section over in verse 17 in a later lesson that deals with that very thing. Listen to verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which what? Drown. The word drown indicates like a ship that is sinking, going down. Drown men in what? Destruction and perdition. Both those words are virtually synonymous. Why did Paul use a word like destruction and then a word like perdition? Both are virtually, virtually synonymous. Some think it was because just to intensify, just to intensify the harm that comes when you get caught up in the things of this world and lose sight of the contentment that you should have coupled with godliness. Those who desire to be rich. Does he say those who are rich fall into temptation and a snare? No, but they are in a position where it's going to be a little more difficult for them. They're going to have to be very careful not to be caught up in what they possess. Abraham was a rich man, but he was also the friend of God and the father of the faithful. And he was rich. He was rich. So was Job. And while his riches were taken away by Satan, they were restored by the Lord. And he had more than he had to begin with. Oh, yes, being wealthy can be a great blessing to the Lord's cause if that wealth is used in an unselfish way. So it is not riches, but the desire to be rich. And the word desire indicates an intense stretching forward to have it. An obsessive desire to have the material things of this life. And then in verse 10, the same thing is mentioned for the what? The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. You've heard it said, and rightfully so, time and again. He does not write here that money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is the love of money. So there's another why. Why do those who desire to be rich fall into destruction and perdition and, and are like drowning men, like sinking ships? Because, verse 10, for, because the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their what? In their greediness, there's the problem, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. In verse 9 when he says, they've fallen into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, think of how many crimes are committed 
that are related to money. An awful lot of crimes are related to the desire to have money, stealing, various other things, extortion. Any number of crimes that could be cited have their root or their source in that inordinate desire for riches. And so it is not money that's evil, but it is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. And so as we begin next time, Lord willing, we'll see a contrast that we are to maintain between those who are caught up in the things of this world and those who are caught up in the things of the next world where we should be caught up. But you, O man of God, flee these things. Don't even flirt with them. Flee them and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. We'll talk more about those, the Lord willing, the next time. Tonight as we close, do you love the Lord enough if you haven't obeyed Him in obeying the gospel and becoming His child to do so tonight? If not, we plead with you to do that in the only way that you can, by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, by repenting of your sins, confessing Him to be the Christ, and then being buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins. If you need to come home to your first love, we plead with you to come now. As we stand to sing, to encourage you. Will you come?